Father in heaven, we come into your presence. We've worshipped, we've prayed, we've given. And Lord, we're asking that you would speak to us through your word. That's a wonderful and miraculous thing. You are the creator of all the earth, the heavens and the earth. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways than our ways. But we are here as your creatures longing to be taught of Jesus, longing to see Jesus lifted up, longing to have a deeper relationship with you. So we open our hearts to you right now, and we invite you that you would speak to our hearts, Lord Jesus. Speak to us in a powerful way. Speak to us in a way that arrests our footsteps, that keeps us from being distracted, and that focuses us on the one thing that matters, and that is you. Thank you, Father, so much. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jim was in his 20s. It was the second church that he had been attempting to pastor in New York City. This one was located in Brooklyn. And as he began to work with this church, his father-in-law had been overseeing a couple of churches in New York City, and he was given the opportunity to begin working with this church. Now, Jim had no pastoral training. He had nothing except for a burden from Jesus and a passion to reach people for Jesus. But it was a challenge. You see this little church in Brooklyn, there were about 20 people who would show up on an average Sunday. And as Jim came to, to speak there, he was really discouraged because he and his wife, Carol, who Carol was a bit of a musician, they were not able to make ends meet with what was being given by the church of just 20 people. In fact, they had an offering one week that was $150. And, that was, and then I think the week after that, it was about $85. And he said, God, this isn't going to work. So they both went and they got full-time jobs in addition to pastoring the church. It was so discouraging to Jim. The churches were falling apart. He tells a story about in one of the churches that as he was beginning to share in his sermon that all of a sudden there was a loud crack and five people in a pew fell to the floor as the, the, the pew just buckled right there. It was a discouraging situation. As, as he looked out, he said, man, God, I believe you've called me to this. I believe you want me to reach New York City, but what am I going to do? I don't know how to make a difference here. It just feels so dead. It feels so empty. It's not making a difference. One Sunday, he tells about how it was just difficult for him to even go to church to be able to preach. But one Sunday, as he got up and he was preaching, in the middle of his sermon, he just couldn't take it any longer. He didn't have what it takes took even to finish his sermon. And so he said this. He said, I'm sorry. I, I can't preach in this atmosphere. Something is terribly wrong. I don't know what to say. I can't go on. Carol, would you play something on the piano? And the, would the rest of you come to the altar? If we don't see God help us, I don't know. And that was it. What would you do if I got up here? And that's what I said. I said, if God doesn't show up in this place, if he doesn't come right now, I don't know what to do. And that was it. There's a moment like that in Jesus' ministry, a shocking moment, a moment that arrests everyone's attention, unlike any other moment of his entire ministry. 
It began the weekend of that famous feast at Simon's house where you remember that Mary Magdalene brought that year's wages worth of perfume and she just anointed Jesus with it. She poured out her love on Jesus. It was a a weekend in Bethany that was filled with joy for Jesus as there were people who were recognizing his mission. They were appreciating who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. And then the moment came. It was time to go to Jerusalem. You see, it was the Passover week. It was AD 31, the year that we now know Jesus was crucified. But his disciples, despite the fact that Jesus had warned them again and again that he was going to the cross, didn't seem to grasp that that was his mission. Go with me to Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, we pick up the story of Jesus looking to Jerusalem and saying, it's time for me to go. And so he he tells his disciples in the first few verses of Matthew 21, he says to two of them in particular, I want you to go over to the city of Bethphage and I want you to go to this village and you're going to find a donkey and a colt tied up by a house. And you're going to take it and bring it back for me to ride on into Jerusalem. And they say, well, what happens when they ask us, why are we taking these animals? And Jesus says to them, tell them that the Lord has need of them. This is really significant because this is the first time that Jesus has ever referred to himself as Lord. Jesus is beginning to acknowledge what he has come to do before the people. They're beginning to see it in a bigger way. So the disciples go and they grab these, this donkey and this colt and they bring it to Jesus. Now, to those who were immersed in the Hebrew Scriptures, this was a very significant moment. Because we pick up in verse 4, Matthew explains to us, in case we aren't familiar with Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, he quotes from that, explaining to us that this is to fulfill a very specific prophecy about Jesus. Something significant in fulfilling prophecy is about to happen. So verse 4, Matthew says this, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold your what? Behold, your king is coming to you. Over the Christmas season, we've been talking about Jesus being born as a humble baby, being born in a manger. We've talked about how he grew up just like you and I did. He had to approach the Father, learning through Scripture. He was fully God and he chose to come down and become fully human. This mystery of the incarnation that's beyond what we can fathom, fully God, and fully human, your example and your Savior. But now, it says, behold, your king is coming. This is the prophecy that he's stepping up to fulfill. Behold, your king is coming, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Can you imagine how excited the disciples are at this point? This is what they have been longing for. This is what they've been looking for. Finally, Jesus is going to acknowledge that he is the Messiah. He is the king, and hopefully he'll cast out those dreaded Romans, and he'll take over Jerusalem, and he'll set up things for peace and prosperity for all of the Jews. 
This is the hopes that are going through their mind as they go joyfully on their mission to grab that, that colt and that donkey and they bring it back to Jesus. And then they take their robes off and they put it on the donkey. And Jesus gets on it and begins to ride. We continue in verse 6. So disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now we see this back in Kings, when Jehu was elected as king of Israel by God, that they took their robes off and that they set them on the ground and that they allowed him to walk on them. Today we might be more familiar with a red carpet being laid out for somebody important, somebody to walk down in an important moment. Here they take off their garments and they put it on the road so that Jesus can ride over it. They want to acknowledge that Jesus is king, that he is the Messiah. They wave these palm branches, which are often waved when you had victory celebration. Then the multitudes, verse 9, who went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a word of Aramaic roots. It means please save to the, what? Son of David. What's the significance of that? Son of David? That's hugely significant because David was promised that an heir would sit on the throne. One of his children would sit on the throne forever. That there would always be in the family of David a king on the throne. So here they're saying, here comes the king. Here comes the son of David. Hosanna, please save son of David. Save us from these dreaded Romans. We want for you to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Can you imagine this scene? I mean, here Jesus has often been rejected. He's often been, people have been ready to throw him off a cliff. But now the moment has come when the crowds are excited about Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. They're acknowledging that he's the son of David. He's the king. He's the one who's come to save. What a glorious and exciting moment as Jesus is acknowledged as the king that he really is. Verse 10 continues, When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And in fact, if you read in John chapter 12, this is recorded in all of the Gospels, but in John chapter 12, when it talks about Jesus riding into Jerusalem, it says that the, the leaders, the Pharisees, came up and they said, the whole world has gone after this man. It was, all of Jerusalem was moved. And they said, who is this man? What is he doing? How is he coming in riding like a king? The whole city was moved saying, who is this? Now there's still some doubt there as you see in verse 11. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. They point out his humble origins. You see, Nazareth was that side of the railroad tracks you didn't want to be from. It was the town that was irreputable. It wasn't the place where you wanted to acknowledge, yeah, that's where I grew up. You'd rather just skip that part. And they call him a prophet rather than a king here. Verse 12, Jesus went into the temple of God. You see what he's doing? 
He's ridden over the Mount of Olives. He's come as king to Jerusalem, and he comes to the place of rulership and authority in Jerusalem, and he comes into the temple. It's interesting, the chronology here is kind of skipped over because in the book of Mark, we find that Jesus came into the temple, he surveys the temple, and then he goes back to Bethany, and he comes back the next morning. We might look at more of that on another week, but here it just emphasizes that he goes into the temple of God, and then it continues, and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Is it just me or is there a disconnect here? When you, when you read this, do you, do you think, okay, Jesus, what are you doing? I know that you're God on earth. I know that you have wisdom and that you're following the Father's instructions, but I don't understand. Why did you have to go and do this? Does that question rise in your mind at all? It makes me think a little bit, what is Jesus' purpose here? Why did Jesus go and do this? Can you imagine as Jesus comes into the temple? Now, in the outer court of the temple where the Gentiles could come, now, there were Jews who would come from all throughout the diaspora at this time. There was a, Jews were spread out throughout Asia Minor. There, there was, they would travel from long distances to come to the Passover. They knew that they needed to bring sacrifices, that they needed to bring offerings. But it was inconvenient to travel with your lamb or, or whatever you were coming to give as an offering to God. And so what they would do is they would bring money in their home country's currency and they would bring it to the temple. And when they got to the outer courts, the temple had conveniently provided for them that there they would have those who would sell them uh, the lambs or if you were poor, they would sell you the doves for your, your sacrifices. And they would also provide for the temple tax. You see, everyone who uh, worshipped at the temple had to pay an annual temple tax and it was a half shekel you had to do it in the currency of the temple you couldn't just use any of the money that was used from different in different parts of the world but you had to use specifically the money that was minted there in Jerusalem these are practical things that had to be cared for in order for people to be able to have their sacrifices in order for them to be able to give their offerings so this business is going on in the outer courts of the temple and Jesus walks into that temple and he sees what's going on and he walks up to those money changers tables and he just turns the tables over does this sound like something that Jesus would do to you at first as we read this we think why is he being so extreme and this isn't even the first time that he's done this if you read in John chapter 2 when he goes into the temple the first time he goes and he takes a whip, and he does the same thing and scares people out of the temple. What is Jesus doing here? Well, let's let him explain for himself rather than assuming what he's doing. If you read in Mark uh, chapter 11 where the account is there, it, it goes into even more detail about what he does at this place. Not only does he turn over the tables, not only does he send away those who are buying Animal, or selling animals, which at this time, just, just a caveat, they were mistreating those who had traveled. 
they would charge them exorbitant fees, kind of like when you go to a tourist town and you want to buy a souvenir to take home, it always costs way more than what it should, right? Well, when they came to the temple in Jerusalem, the priests and the leaders were benefiting from this trade. They knew that people had traveled and that they would need to buy these things. And so priests were profiting from what was taking place in this, this trade that was going on. So, we continue reading what, what Jesus does in verse 13. It says, And Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus says, It's written, My Father's house, it's to be a house of prayer. And I have come to set things right. Everyone expected that the Messiah would come and that he would set things right. But they were thinking that that meant the Romans would be overthrown. That they would be given peace in that way. But Jesus came for this purpose, he said, to make my house a house of prayer. And he was serious about it. Because you read in Mark chapter 11, it says that he wasn't even letting people pass through with their wares or their things to sell. Apparently people had made kind of a shortcut through the outer courts of the temple. And somehow Jesus would stop people. He would not allow them to walk through the temple at this point. Sometimes we picture this as just like a little moment in time where he flips over the tables. But here he is and he has taken over the temple. Jesus has asserted his authority as king. As he came down from the Mount of Olives, people were calling him king. And so he walks into the temple and he says, As king, this is what my kingdom will be like. My house, it shall be called a house of prayer. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, at that point, he could have said, My house is going to be called a house of preaching. Come and hear me preach. He could have said, my house is going to be a house of singing. My house is going to be fill in the blank. He could have used any different types of things, but he chose instead to say, my house, it's going to be called a house of prayer. Now, there was preaching and teaching that took place in the temple. We find that in Luke, that after he comes and he takes over the temple, that daily he was there in the courts teaching people. He was sitting in the courts and he would explain the gospel to people. We know that there were choirs that were appointed to sing there in the temple. But Jesus doesn't focus on any of that. He focuses on this one thing. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Why is that? Like we read at the beginning of our service, Psalm 145 and verse 18 says, The Lord draws near to those who call upon Him. It's through prayer that we approach into the presence of God. That had been the goal of God throughout human history. Since the fall when sin separated us from God, like Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, sin separates us from God. Adam and Eve were separated from God. God provided the sacrificial system as a way to reunite people's hearts with Him. To provide that forgiveness. To lead them to pray to Him. But God also, when the Israelites went into the wilderness and He brought His people out, His own special people, in Exodus 25 and verse 8, 
Jesus says, build a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. God wants to be close to his people. He wants to draw near to his people. That was the purpose, the function of the temple. But in all of the busyness, in all that was going on in the temple, what God had purposed for the temple had been lost sight of. And I don't know about you, but it's all too easy for that to happen with any ritual or any tradition that takes place. Have you ever experienced that? When you begin to do something and you begin to go through the motions, pretty soon you begin to forget the value of it. You begin to forget the incredible meaning of it for your life. And you see that Jesus was not okay with that. Jesus wasn't okay with all of the busyness going on, with all of the distractions. As people came in, they were stressed, they were haggling back and forth, trying to figure out how to get the best deal, to get the best uh, ox to sacrifice, or lamb to sacrifice, or dove to sacrifice. And all of it was taking the focus off of drawing near to God. All of this was supposed to point to Jesus. That's what this Passover week was about. And as Jesus approached this opportunity of the Passover coming up, Jesus wanted for them to acknowledge Him as the true Messiah. He wanted them to acknowledge Him as the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so He went into that temple. In the midst of all the busyness, He begins just throwing over tables. He begins driving out those who are selling the the animals, and he stops people from just walking through the temple for no reason. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. There's power in prayer, my friends. Jesus again and again shows us the power that there is in prayer. But I love what it says uh, in the, the book Desire of Ages, describing what Jesus is doing here. In fulfillment of prophecy, the people had proclaimed Jesus king of Israel. He had received their homage and accepted the office of king. In this character, he must act. They themselves had said, here comes the king. And they'd worshipped him, saying, Hosanna in the highest. And so he was acting as king. We read on in Desire of Ages, page 593. It says, never before... Had he assumed such kingly authority? Never before had his words and works possessed so great power. I mean, you think about it here. It's not described that he forces them out of the temple. But somehow when Jesus speaks, when Jesus looks at these people, they run in terror. These are people who are wanting to put Jesus to death. These are hardened criminals who are uh, stealing from other people. These are not soft gentle people who Jesus is driving out of the temple. And yet, when they see Jesus, they flee in terror because the king is showing up. And when the king shows up to his sanctuary, what he wants is for his house to become a house of prayer, a place for people to connect with God. So here he's asserting his kingly authority He had done marvelous works throughout Jerusalem, but never before in a manner so solemn and impressive. Never before had Jesus 
caught their attention in such a dramatic way as at this point. So don't miss it. Jesus wants for his house to be a house of prayer. If in this church here in Templeton Hills, now we know that there is a sanctuary in heaven, Hebrews tells us. So this isn't God's special sanctuary, but it is a place where God comes to meet with his people. And so as the body of Christ comes together, this becomes a holy place. And if we're distracted by a bunch of other things, not necessarily even just during the Sabbath hours, but what about all the different things that we have going on in this church? Do we have peripheral things that distract from the mission that Jesus has for this church? I'm just putting the question out there for us to consider because this house is to be a house of prayer. A place for you and I to be able to come into the presence of Jesus, to be able to connect with Jesus. Don't let all of the other things distract from that most important goal of knowing Jesus and of helping other people to come to know Jesus. A house of prayer. Not a house of preaching. Not a house of singing, but a house of prayer. I want to challenge us as a congregation. This afternoon, our prayer ministry team is going to be meeting and praying together, but I want to invite all of you who aren't a part of that ministry to also be praying that God would show us how to make this more of a house of prayer. Because that's what Jesus wants. What are the things that Jesus might need to disrupt in our lives? What are some of the things that He might need to clear out of the way for this to be a house of prayer? I don't know what it is, but I don't know about you. I long for Jesus to make it clear to me. Whatever it takes, if it takes disrupting my schedule, if it takes pushing things out of my life, I want to experience a house of prayer. How about you? So we continue on and we see the difference that this makes. In Matthew chapter 21, but when, uh, after he says, this is my father's house, is to be called the house of prayer, he's taking over. You imagine as people are streaming out of the temple, they're running out of the temple, the, the sheep and the oxen are going out of the temple, there's coins that have been rolling around on the floor, tables are turned over. What happens next? What is Jesus' purpose? Verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Imagine that you're one of these blind men or one of these lame men. To get to the temple would have already been really difficult, wouldn't it? So here you have these blind and lame men coming to the temple, and as they're coming to the temple, it's Passover, they're excited, they know that Jesus is in town, and they heard that Jesus is at the temple, and as they're going, all of a sudden the blind people start hearing, before I imagine the lame people hear it, they hear this mob coming. And as the mob comes, they're saying, turn around, go, there's a madman in there, he's taking over the temple, run for your life. It's Jesus. And then the lame people who are coming along, they're, they're getting jostled by this crowd. And how are they going to keep going forward? How is it that these blind men and these blind women, these lame individuals, make it to the temple? When everybody else is terrified and running away, somehow they manage to make it into the temple. Isn't that interesting? So there they are. They're in the temple. And what is Jesus doing? 
He's healing them. He says, I want it to be a house of prayer. I am king, and you can come to me and ask for whatever you want. That's what he tells his disciples. Ask anything in my name, and I'll do it for you. I want to help you. So he sets up a place where people can connect with God. He says, come to me. Ask, and I'll do it. The lame come, the blind come, and Jesus heals them. Then verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple. So who else is in the temple? The children are there. And I imagine their parents may have been there too. You have children crying out. They're shouting in the temple. And what are they shouting? Saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Please save King You who are on the throne, please save. You who are Messiah, please save. They are praying to Jesus. Do you see it? Everybody else missed the point. They're running away from Jesus. They didn't like what Jesus did. In fact, these actions are largely what lead to Jesus being crucified that week. And Jesus knew that full well as he came down and he saw Jerusalem. That's what led him to weep. He knew that they were going to reject him. And as he came into the temple and he did these actions to clear the temple, to make it a house of prayer, he knew that making the temple a house of prayer was going to lead the priests to hate him and to eventually lead him to be crucified. So the chief priests come in. They see the children shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Then he quotes from Psalm chapter 8 and verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Nobody else gets who Jesus is, but the kids get it. They had got it when he was coming as king, but once he began to do all this in the temple, they ran away scared, but the children still got it. And the children still sang praises to Jesus as the king. Don't underestimate what God can teach you through your kids. I've seen that with our kids here in our church and at our school, and I've heard them say things like at the beginning of This last school year, I remember one of the kindergartners saying to another one, did you know that Jesus can be our very best friend and that he's with us all the time? I thought, man, that is such a simple truth that if I really grasped that in my life, what a difference it would make. I'm so thankful for the work that Stephen and Zalata do up there week by week in teaching our children about Jesus because one day it's going to become hard for us to share the gospel again. And I believe that we're going to need children to stand up and praise Jesus in that day. To, to point people to Scripture in that day when maybe some of the adults aren't able to do it. There's value. There's power in our kids. So kids, remember that Jesus values you. That Jesus wants for you to have an important part in His kingdom. He has an amazing mission for you in your life. Jesus acknowledges them, and then he goes, verse 17, then he left them 
and went out of the city. So why was it that the temple had become so distracted? That the leaders had become so distracted? Friends, I believe it is because the enemy hates prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, it says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces of darkness. We wrestle through prayer, the chapter goes on to tell us. So why wouldn't the enemy want to do everything possible in the lives of those at the temple to distract them from connecting to the source of power in their lives? And in the same way for you and I, do you think that the enemy wants for you to pray? Do you think that the enemy wants for you to value prayer when Jesus has said such phenomenal things about what happens when we pray? There's a great controversy going on, and we see this when Daniel offers up prayer to God, that the angels come and answer to that prayer, and they end up wrestling with the, the, another prince, and we're not sure what all exactly that means, but we know that there's a great controversy going on, and that prayer has an important role to play in that. In Testimonies for the Church, volume 7, page 42, it says this, the idea that prayer is not essential... So the idea that prayer isn't important is one of Satan's most successful devices to ruin souls. Prayer is communion with God, the fountain of wisdom, the source of strength and peace and happiness. God longs for us to make this place a house of prayer. But the Bible also tells us that you are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. He longs for us to become houses of prayer. Each of us living in constant communion, constant connection with the Father. Each of us being someone that people can come to in order for them to receive a closer connection with Jesus. Because we are in communion with Jesus. And then what takes place in our own hearts, when we pray, when we allow Jesus to come as king of our hearts and to sit on the throne of our hearts, it may take him coming and turning over some tables. Because honestly, who has time to pray this day and age? Who has time to set aside a solid block of time in order to pray? Who has time to go to prayer meeting? I have work. I have family needs. I have so much going on in my life. And when I go to prayer meeting... I'm just not sure that it's making a difference. Friends, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And Jesus longs for your your heart to be a sanctuary of prayer. Look at this promise of what takes place in Signs of the Times, August 11, 1909. It says, Entering into communion with the Savior, we enter the region of peace. When we commune with God, it brings peace to our soul like nothing else can. This past week, I was at a required pastor's meeting up at Mount Hermon. Uh, it's a, a retreat center, a Christian retreat center up above Santa Cruz. I was there with our teachers also. Stephen and Zalata were there. All of the teachers and pastors from the Seventh-day Adventist Church Uh, in the Central California area, all gathered together for about three days there just for inspiration, times of prayer, times to get together, great times of worship, times of training. It was an inspiring time. 
But in the evenings, we had a prayer time set aside after the evening meeting. It was about 8.30 in the evening, went till about 9.30. And the first evening, I went in there and it was pouring rain. I think we got a little bit more up north even than we had down here. It was pouring rain, so very few people came in. But there was one lady who came in and she was distressed. I could tell that there was something on her heart. And as we began to go into the prayer time, Joyce said, Sue came in here and she has a special request for prayer this evening. So we're going to distract ourselves from the, the normal prayer and we're going to especially pray for the request that she has. So she began to share. She said, I have a friend who moved back east. Some of you know him. He worked here. And his daughter is one of a, a set of 15-year-old twins. They were doing a surgery on her appendix when they nicked her, her bowel and they didn't realize it. They sewed her back up. And then afterwards, they were wondering why she wasn't getting well, but she kept getting worse even though she'd had her appendix removed. As she kept getting worse and sicker and sicker, they finally took her back to the doctor. They opened her back up and they realized that there had been uh, fluids leaking throughout her body and that she was fully, uh, I think the word is septic. Eventually, it got so bad that they had her on a ventilator. And she said, and now... They're not sure what to do because they've had her on antibiotics for weeks now. They've had her on all these medicines and her fever simply won't break. We've got to pray for Amy. So we all gathered together and we put our hands on Sue and we began to pray for Amy. We just asked that Jesus would come near. In Matthew 9.35 it says that he went through all the villages and cities healing and all of the diseases of all the people he found. And we claim the promises of the Bible. And then after that, Joyce said, is there anybody else here that might have a special request? And one of the pastors raised his hand. He said, well, on New Year's Eve, when the fireworks went off, our little dog, Joe. Now, Joe is a gift from God. Clearly, God brought it to our family. He means so much to our kids. And even our Labrador retriever loves Joe. This little chihuahua. He had a picture of Joe. He showed us on his phone. So this is Joe. Joe ran off when he heard the fireworks. Our kids are distraught. We don't know where Joe is. So we said, okay, Zeke, we're going to pray for you. So we laid our hands on Zeke, and we began to pray for little Joe. God, you know where Joe is. He's just a puppy lost out there somewhere, but you promised that you know when a sparrow falls. So how much more do you know about little Joe? prayed for him, and then we went around praying for some other people, and then his wife came back, or, or came in, she had been doing some other things, and so we asked her, what would you like prayer for? She said, I'd like prayer for Joe. So then we spent some more time, I mean, didn't God hear the first time? But we, went, we spent some more time praying for Joe, praying for the kids, that they would see that this would be an answer to their prayers. Well, the next day, Sue received a text message an update about Amy and what was taking place in Amy's life says this, Amy has had no fevers for 24 hours. She is eating and a bit and walking the halls. Her abdominal wound is slowly healing. The infectious disease doctor and the surgeon have cleared her to return home. 
We had the privilege of thanking the hospital floor staff for all their help and encouragement. We are heading through the door, ready for the next part of the journey, thankful for God's mercy and the love, prayers of family and friends. He answers prayer. Jesus answers prayer. I was excited when Sue shared that with us and told us, hey, God answered the prayer that we prayed. I thought, well, hey, at least one of the prayers was clearly answered. That's a great thing. I'm going to praise God for that. So then we had our final lunch on Thursday, and we were about to leave when Zeke comes running up to me. He says, Zach, you'll never guess what happened. We found the dog. Joe came home. Does God care about the little stuff in our lives? When we enter into the realm of communion with God, peace comes to our souls. Answers happen. Jesus wants to work in our lives, but the problem for me in my life, I often find, is that I'm distracted. Just like those Jews in the temple who were going about their business, focused on so many different things in their rituals, all the time forgetting that the King of Kings, God Himself was there ready to make His house a house of prayer. I don't know about you, but I believe that it's time for us to make this a greater house of prayer by His strength and in His grace. I believe that Jesus wants to disrupt some of the busyness of our life. Maybe He wants to turn over some tables in our life. Maybe He wants for us to push some things out of the way because the devil doesn't want for you and I to pray. He wants to distract us from prayer because he knows that in prayer we have a lifeline to the king of the universe. That we have access to wisdom, to strength, to the love of God, to the grace of God that we would not have if we did not ask. There's power in prayer. May our hearts and may this church be a house of prayer. In a special way, we have that opportunity this coming week. And I'll be honest, it's going to take some disrupting of our lives in order to make this place a house of prayer during the next 10 days starting on Wednesday. But I wanted to invite John and Nadine to come up here and to share with us just for a minute about their experience with the 10 days of prayer and the difference that it can make. Pastor Zach asked us to um, give a little testimony of what the 10 days of prayer have been like. Um, We had the blessing of um, being baptized here late in 07. And, uh, yes, and uh, shortly thereafter, we had the 10 days of prayer. So John and I had never gone through anything like that to come together as a church family and to totally submit ourselves to prayer, to the Holy Spirit. It was one of the most moving, beautiful things I've ever gone through. We also invited our Spanish church to come and join us. Um, They did, and their prayers were beautiful. I could not understand one word they were saying, but I could feel the love, the Holy Spirit, moving on this church when they were praying. It was wonderful. So I'm really encouraging you to come and be a part of the 10 days of prayer with us. 
I know you will be blessed because it is an amazing experience to go through. Um, I know I had something else. <laughs> but I just, I, I just want you to know that I know at the end of the 10 days of prayer, I always feel like, oh, I don't want it to be over. This is such a blessing to be a part of. And if we truly believe that we're living in the last days of this earth's history, I think we need to think seriously about coming together and praying with each other and supporting each other and loving each other because it's an amazing experience. And I hope and I pray you will come. You know, it's just such a blessing when we can all come together and pray. You know, Pastor has talked about some things, uh, how answers to prayer. Joy, when she came to prayer meeting the other night, was very distraught about her brother and, and the situation that was going on down there. And we prayed, and you heard the answer to that prayer. Mm-hmm. When we all come together as one, we can share our burdens with each other. Mm-hmm. If you don't come here, we don't know how, what to pray for for you. There's just so many things that are going on in this world today, but the numbers give us the strength. When we can lift things up to God and we can cleanse ourselves of so many things. The first, prayer, the first 10 days of prayer that we came to here right after we were baptized, I just had, I felt like a trash can inside of me that I wanted to get rid of. And I sat here on my knees and just let it out. And I had so many arms around me. It was such a blessing. And that can be the blessing for any of you. That it starts on Wednesday. And I know sometimes it's like, well, I got this going and I got that going. Is it time to let that trash can be emptied? You know, there's times in my life I wish I could unscrew my head and dump everything out of it. It just gets, it's like it's just so busy in there, you know. Um, I remember at one prayer meeting, I'm looking at Pastor Cliff, and at prayer meeting he was kind of upset he had lost his briefcase. So we prayed about it. We prayed and prayed about it. And about halfway through prayer meeting, his phone rang. He gets up, he goes outside, he comes back. Guess what? They found my satchel. It's down at the prison. I mean, there's just all sorts of stories like that that you hear. And it just is so amazing when we can all come together and do that. You know, have you ever gone someplace and you've, you've found some food that you just really love? So you get a nice plate of it. I don't care if it's vegan or not, whatever. Um, you know, might even be a bowl of ice cream, I don't know. But, you know, you go back for seconds and it's gone. And it's kind of like what prayer meeting is to me. It's like, it just feels so good when we all come together and we pray together. So I encourage you to come Wednesday night. We're starting at 7 o'clock. So I just thank you. Thank you so much, Sean and Nadine. There's power when we pray together. And that whole thing that John's talking about, about that trash can being emptied out of his heart, out of his life, 
that's especially the focus. I don't know if you've seen uh, the little flyers that are there in the back. I invite you to take one and to, to, to pass it out to anybody. You can take a handful of them if you like. But the specific focus of this 10 days of prayer is a journey through the sanctuary. And the sanctuary is really about coming for cleansing so that that trash can be removed out of our life by the blood of Jesus and that we can enter into his presence. And in his presence, his fullness of joy. It's like that bowl of ice cream that has no calories and that helps your health. Because coming in the presence of Jesus is full of joy. There's full of peace. In closing, I wanted to read from Pastoral Ministry, page 170. It talks about Christ first cleansing the temple and how he's longing to do that again. At his first advent, Christ cleansed the temple. Prior to his second advent, he will again cleanse the temple. Malachi talks about this, that the, he will come as a refiner to his temple. He was there cleansing the temple. Why? Because commercial work had been brought in and God had been forgotten. With hurry here and hurry there and hurry somewhere else, there was no time to think of heaven. Friends, nothing matters like eternity. Nothing matters like making this house a house of prayer. Like allowing your heart to be the place where Jesus sits as king and makes it a place of prayer. May we become houses of prayer. Because like Jim experienced at the end of that sermon that was cut in half when he said, I just can't go on. I just can't keep preaching this, this day because I just don't know what to do anymore. If God doesn't help us, I don't know what to do. And he invited people to come forward. They began to pray at the altar. And as they, as they were praying, people began to weep. And before long, one of the deacons came running from the back of the church and he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This whole time, I have been stealing money from the offering. No wonder the offerings were only $85 some week. He'd been stealing from God's church. But the church didn't immediately just grow and become massive. But over the coming months, Jim began to have renewed hope. He was, came down with a sickness and went down to Florida to recover for a little while. And there he felt God impressing upon him this vision that if anything else, I may not know how to preach. My wife may not know how to lead a choir. But we will make this church here in Brooklyn a house of prayer. He came back from that trip to Florida. And he, he said this when he got back into town. He said, what I want to say to you today, brothers and sisters, is not fancy or profound or spectacular. But I want to say to you today, with all the seriousness that I can muster, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer of our church. What happens at prayer meeting will be the gauge by which we will judge success or failure, because that will be the measure by which God blesses us. He began to focus on making the church a church of prayer, on prayer meeting being as important as their worship service. And as they focused on making it a house of prayer, things began to radically change at that little church with 20 people attending in Brooklyn. Because you might know of it today, 
Today it's called the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Jim Simbala has been a pastor there for over 40 years. Today there's about 16,000 people in attendance at that church with about 20 people in the pews. And the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir has won six Grammy Awards. Friends, often we dream too small. And I believe it's because we're busy and distracted from making our own hearts and His church a place of prayer. I just want to appeal to you today to join us in these 10 days of prayer. If it's your desire to at least commit that during these 10 days, from January 11 to January 21, to pray in a special way like you haven't prayed before, I want to invite you to stand. If you're just willing to say, hey, for 10 days I'm willing to, to especially try to pray, maybe to overturn some tables in my life, maybe to, to additionally focus on Jesus like I haven't before, I'm going to connect with Jesus in a bigger way for these 10 days, January 11 to 21. For some of you, I believe that God is specifically calling you to do what John and Nadine appealed for, and that is to come to the 10 days of prayer. How many of you would be willing to say, I will be there for as many nights as I can possibly be to the 10 days of prayer? Praise God. How many of you will be willing to say, I will be there for every single night, come what may, I'm coming to the 10 days of prayer? Father in heaven, you see our commitments this morning. It's only 10 days, but you can do radical things in our life in 10 days. Don't let us forget that the Christian church was birthed in prayer. 10 days of prayer and the Holy Spirit was poured out with power. Lord, we give you permission to do it again, to do it in a fresh way. We need your power. We need you to show up. We long for your love to be revealed in Paso Robles, in Atascadero, and to the ends of the earth. Father, we long for this house to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people to come and connect with Jesus. Father, bless my friends. Bless their commitment as they are determined to pray in a greater way for these 10 days. I pray that you would show yourself to them in a powerful way that would lead them to want to pray more. That's the greatest answer to prayer that we could have is more of your spirit and more of a heart to pray. And Father, I pray that it wouldn't end with these 10 days, but that it would increase and grow, that we would have more and more of a hunger for Jesus, more and more of a hunger to come to the throne of grace, to approach our King of Kings who sits on the throne of the universe, still with a human body, yet God over all creation who is willing to answer our prayers. We come to you in prayer this morning asking that you would stir in us a heart to pray and that you would make this house your house of prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.